Matthew 18. If you were not here last week, we are not kicking someone out of the church this morning. That's not what Matthew 18 is about at all. In fact, the more I study the passage, the more excited I've been to see that this is God's plan for how He loves us and wants to grow and purify and mature His bride. And how different it is than the culture Jesus stepped into when He came 2,000 years ago. So we, again, you're not getting kicked out of the church this morning. And we're not teaching you how to do that. We're really teaching you how to talk to your brother or your sister about sin. How to have a conversation. One sinner to another. Right? One sinner to another. Sometimes I need to talk to you. Sometimes you need to talk to me. Sometimes we've got the same struggle. We need to talk together. Lift one another up in prayer and help keep each other accountable. And yes, sometimes the conversation doesn't go well. And Jesus has given us instructions for what to do when the brother isn't wanting to listen. And so that's what this is all about. You know, well, what do we do? What do we do? Do we make the mistake of maybe a hyper-fundamentalist church and just kick everybody out? Or do we go to the mistake the liberal church would make and say, well, we don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Oh, so you're just going to let people sin? That's not loving either. And it's not an either-or. There's a whole different third path here, and that's what we're exploring. I'm going to turn this into a three-part sermon, so we'll get the middle section of Matthew 18 today. The middle section, the part most people are familiar with, you know, the steps, the three steps. Go to your brother alone, take two or three, then tell the whole church. Well, it's not really just those three steps. We saw last week that there's so much that has to happen before you go and have this conversation. So I'll, I'll recap last week's sermon, in case you weren't here. And even if you were, we need to hear this again. So I'll give you steps one, two, three, and then today we'll focus on four, five, six, and seven. Next week we'll wrap up with eight, nine, and ten. Remember the context, and context is always key to understanding your Bible. What is the context? Don't just rip a verse out of context and try to make sense out of it. What is the context? When we go back to Matthew 18, 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? By the way, Matthew being a Jew did not like to use God's name in print or even the word God, so they would say kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. So this is not an honest question. This is not an, a humble question by the disciples. This isn't, you know, Jesus. You know, I really just want to know how to be a good soldier in the kingdom, how to be a good peasant in the kingdom. This is the disciples, the ones we know and love, right? Go to your mom and have your mom ask Jesus, can my son sit on your left and your right? You know, they already thought they knew the answer to this question. If I'm not one of the greatest, you know, if I'm not the greatest, I'm one. I just want to hear Jesus confirm what I already know about myself. Their 
in a culture, an honor-shame culture, where your honor is everything, and to be humbled or shamed is the worst thing imaginable. Honor is everything. And how do you get honor in this culture? How do you get honor in a theocratic culture with the Mosaic law? How do you get honor? Think about it. What, they're already answering this question in their minds. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's the one who knows God's law the best and keeps it the best. Because who got the most honor in their culture? The elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. This is the paradigm they lived in. Well, if we're going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, we've got to be like these guys. We've got to know the Scriptures the best and be sinless. We've got to be sinless. So which one of us is closest, Jesus? That's what they wanted to know. Which one of us is the sinless one? Which one's the greatest? And Jesus answers in a way they are not expecting at all. In fact, it couldn't be any further from what they were expecting. He grabs a child, a paideon, the Greek says, a child two years old or below. Calls a child to him, if, if, if either, here, hand me that baby, or it was a two-year-old who could toddle over. Here, come on, come over and over here. Okay, look, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? you got to be like this child, like that child. Right? Mom, mom, not to embarrass mom, mom's got to go out, because the child's not great as far as his resume. He hasn't accomplished much. In fact, it's pretty easy to see his sin. He cries when he doesn't get his way. He cries when he wants to be fed. Cries when he wants his diaper changed. Cries just for the sake of crying. Crying when he wants you to get up at 2 a.m. and come meet his needs. Yeah, that kind of baby. Jesus said, you've got to humble yourself like this child if you want to be greatest in the kingdom. In other words, just to get into the kingdom, you need to acknowledge that you've got nothing to bring to the table when it comes to your own salvation. All Jesus, all grace. He paid it all. That levels the playing field right there. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus is greatest in the kingdom. We're aspiring to be like him in as much as God's grace will allow us on this earth. But don't make the mistake of the Pharisees that we're sinless, we're perfect. If God's letting anyone in the kingdom, it's us. The scriptures are very clear about this, and it needs to be clear because we're such prideful people, and it's the root of all of our sin, it's the root of our fallenness. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So proper church discipline. So Jesus is going to get to the church discipline. And by the way, it's not discipline, somebody's in trouble. What does discipline mean? You're on the football team. Where's, where's uh, Carson and Connor? Do you get disciplined at football practice? Yeah. They, yeah. They train you to be disciplined. In many ways, not just physically, but to not commit penalties. Be disciplined. Stay on your block. Don't leave your assignment. Be disciplined. Discipline means instruction, training, and yes, sometimes correction. 
When you think about disciplining your children, don't always think about the rod in spankings. If you're doing your job right, spanking should be at a minimum. There should be a lot of time instructing, teaching, modeling. So we all need discipline, and Jesus wants His church to be a place where we're disciplined, where we put off the old man, the old sin nature, and put on our new nature in Christ, and we're supposed to help each other do this. And last week I had posed the question, well, how can sinners confront other sinners? It almost sounds hypocritical. It's not hypocritical unless you think you are without sin. Then it's hypocritical. In fact, sinners are the perfect people to go talk to other people about sin. You ought to know better than anyone that we need to be humble about this and we need to be teachable and we need to talk to one another. So what are the first three steps then? Step one was to practice radical humility. You've got to become like a little child in your own estimation. Dwell on the gospel every morning, first thing when you get up. Only by God's grace do I have any hope today. He should have taken me off this planet a long time ago. I should be destined for hell, but I'm destined for heaven. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I have all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly. I get so much that I don't deserve, and I didn't get the one thing I really deserve. Praise God. Count your blessings every morning. then you'll be in a place where you'll be able someday maybe to help to discipline somebody else. Step step two, practice radical personal holiness. Jesus has taught uh, this in other places where you pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin or cut off your hand. It's not pluck out your brother's eye or cut off your brother's hand. You're having the conversation with them. If they end up needing to do that, that's something they will have to decide for themselves. The context here, though, is in the specific sin of pride. The specific sin of pride. How do you practice personal holiness and radically get rid of your pride? Now, we said last week you can't ever fully get rid of your pride. And if you think you're close, you're probably farther away than you really are. The closer you get to understanding just how deep our pride runs, the more aware you are at just how easy it is for the human heart to be prideful. That's why Paul could say that he's the chief of sinners. Like, really, Paul? You know, the great apostle, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament. You must have been talking about before you were converted. And he's like, no, I'm talking about now. I'm the foremost. He knows his own heart. He knows how much pride is in there. So how do you do this? You have to know where you tend to be the most prideful. Now, this is hard because as human beings, we want to be special. That thing that makes us feel special is the thing that we just cling on to. We like to put ourselves in situations where we shine. Nobody likes to consciously put themselves in situations where you stink You know, why would I want to do that? I am not sitting at that piano Sunday morning. (laughs) You don't want me there. And yet, then we have a tendency to only put ourselves into places where 
where we shine and we get puffed up, we get prideful, we get arrogant. Where, where, where are you the most sinful and prideful? Obviously, this goes for other sins as well, but we're really focusing in on pride here. Are you that guy that like always has to be the first one to answer at the Bible study? Right? Because you're smart and you have good answers. And you get to the point where no one wants to share because they just all look at you. At the end of the day, his answer is going to be better than ours. So, But now you're just shutting down everybody else's ability to stop and think and meditate and ruminate on the Scriptures. And even if their answer isn't that great, you've got to cultivate that learning. So what do you do there? Maybe you go a whole night without answering. Right? And everybody goes home going, gee, Bob was quiet tonight. Must have had a sore throat or something. You know, they're going to notice. They already know you're that guy. Maybe you're the guy who always has to take the lead, always got to be in charge. You, you think your way is the best, so you always have to take the lead. That, that's me. That was me growing up. Always had to take the lead. I was my uh, soccer varsity captain, and then I was president of my fraternity in college, and, and the coach and shortstop of our church softball team. I was horrible on the softball diamond. Terrible testimony. Barking orders. You know, win at all costs. Win, yeah, church softball. And everyone knows that you're the church softball team because you've got the name of your church on the back of your jersey and you're, you're arguing calls with the umpire, kicking dirt on them. You know, you're Billy Martin out there. I used to like to embarrass slower runners on their team and throw them off, out from off my knee just because I could, you know. And then go to church on Sunday and worship. Now I can't be that guy anymore, so I'm not going to do. It. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to coach my kids' little league team until I get this thing under control. I'll be the assistant coach. Oh, so hard to be the assistant coach <laughs> when you want to be the person in charge, right? You think no? Don't don't put Joey in a pitcher. No. You're like it's a game. It's fun. We're teaching our kids. You know. You know, so that's my thing. I went to a seminary that attracts prideful people. They just do because John MacArthur's an amazing guy. He's he's humble when you get to meet him in person. But they tell us when we get there, don't try to be John. You're not John. John's not even John. You know, he's not he's not this larger-than-life guy that people have made him out to be, but God's used him in amazing ways. In fact, when he gets out of the pulpit, his kids go, we don't get it, Dad. They think he's kind of boring at home and kind of socially awkward. And <laughs> Why do all these people come and hear you? It's because God's amazing. Because God's amazing. I had a classmate who was a Navy SEAL. I had a classmate who was a physician not known physicians to be the most humble people. Not all of them, but, you know, right? And they're all coming to the seminary say, oh, we want to do it like John does, and they got to teach us the whole first year, first, second year. They just have to humble us, and they break us down and break us down and break us down and humble us. 
One of my classmates was Jim Otto's son. You know Jim Otto, the Hall of Fame Raider? If you're a football fan out there. But they just leveled the playing field there and just exalted Christ. And they would ask people to leave. They would do Matthew 18 in the seminary. Can you imagine somebody wants to be a pastor and they're gifted and called? And if the, if the guy wasn't humbling himself, they might ask him, you know, this isn't for you. You're, you're, you're talented. You can do Greek and Hebrew. You can do it all. You can preach. You're going to be no good in God's kingdom with this attitude. And they might ask a guy to leave. Maybe he'll come back a year later, two years later after he's been humbled a little. That's impressive to me. If you know anything about private schools asking the money to leave, the tuition to leave, that's... But they trust that God's going to provide if they do things God's way. So you are going to have to humble yourself and ask people around you who know you the best, where do I tend to be the most prideful? You know, what's my thing? Where do I need to step back, maybe? Maybe you're not that person who's always up front. Maybe you're the person whose pride is in disguise, where um, you're always like, I'm no good at anything. Nobody ever wants me to do anything, and I'm not great at anything, and that's pride too. You know, that's pride too. Oh, go out there and serve. There's something to do in the kingdom for everybody. Go out there. It's all important when done unto the Lord. When done for your own reputation, then it doesn't do anything for the Lord. It doesn't do anything for the kingdom. Step three, practice radical love. Jesus says to go after the one lost sheep and leave the 99 behind. This takes radical love. It is hard to do what I'm going to tell you to do today from the Scriptures. It is so hard to go and talk to people about sin. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. If we're humble people and loving people and understand our own sin, it should be very natural to go to someone and say, hey, here's where I missed the mark, but I kind of noticed you've got this thing going on. You've got this pattern. You know, hey, I saw something. I'm not quite sure what it is. I just want to talk. Maybe it wasn't anything. Maybe it's not a sin. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding. But we get all worked up. Think about a time you had to go and talk to somebody about their sin and you got the stomach ache and you're like, you wait and you wait and you wait. And the more you wait, the worse it gets. And then you start like talking to your friends. Hey, I got to go talk to somebody about something. And by the time you're done, they can figure out who it is. You know, because there's only one person that fits that description. So now you've kind of gossiped. And you're like, I just need prayer. I need strength to go talk to them. Why are you afraid? You're what? You're assuming they're going to respond terribly. Now you're sinning by judging somebody else's heart. You think they're going to yell at you. You think they're going to punch you in the face. You think they're going to burst into tears and say you're mean. Now all those things may happen. All those things may happen, but you have to go in there lovingly, humbly, 
I tell you, it's so much easier for somebody to listen to you if they know you're a person who's humble, person who's teachable yourself, person who accepts criticism, person who allows themselves to be disciplined. That's somebody that it's easy to hear correction from. Did that girl in the video sound like somebody who needed her parents to, to confront her? Seemed like a teenager getting an attitude. I mean, she had these horrible shoes, but it looks like everybody in Bosnia had it rough, right? You know, our kids, though, it's usually I have the wrong brand of shoes, right? But you could see she was getting an attitude. She said, I'm not going home today. She was getting mad and angry and bitter, and she was judging her parents. I bet her parents felt horrible that they had to send her out in those shoes. And what melted her heart? Jesus, a a loving gift. The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Anytime you've got to go and talk to your brother about sin and have a conversation, you've got to think kindness, gentleness. I'm just one sinner talking to another sinner trying to figure this crazy life out. We've got the gospel, though. We've got the Holy Spirit. God loves us. He knows our sins, and He chose to love us anyways and die for us. We, we can do this, church. You can do this in your home. You can do this with your spouse. You can do this with your kids. You can do this with your neighbor. So then, now you're ready to actually go and have the conversation. You've humbled your heart. You've practiced radical personal holiness. You've gotten the log out of your eye. You've covered everything in prayer. And you're like, I love this person. I hate to see them like this. Boy, somebody steeped in unrepentant, ugly sin, it may be uncomfortable for you. But think about that person a moment. They are sinning against a holy God. That is a bad place to be. They are trampling on the blood of of Jesus. Care more about their soul than your own comfort. That'll, that'll take the bitterness and just melt it and it'll turn it to compassion. I know we don't like this word, but it's a good biblical word. Pity. Oh. Instead of, ouch, that hurts. Oh, that is so sad that somebody would, would be that stuck in their sin that they would treat other people that way. That is, that is sad. My heart breaks for you. I'm going to go to my brother and love him. Even if, it, even if it's hard, even if it might be a difficult conversation, even if they get mad, even if they throw accusations my way, even if they say, well, you don't love me. Do you know in your heart that you really love them? Then it's okay. You can absorb that Jesus absorbed far worse than we did. A lot of times I have found that if you just give it some time, that initial backlash melts just give the person some time and they'll say, hey, you know, sorry that I got mad at you. My pride was wounded. You're right. I got a problem. All right, well, let's talk about it. That's what Matthew 18 looks like. 
I'm so convinced of this because the way Matthew 18 was kind of taught to me was like it is for those times when somebody is in this obvious, blatant, over-the-top sin and we need some way to get them to change and if they don't, we've got to get them out of here. Oh, Matthew 18, there we go, justification for kicking someone out of the church. It's not that at all, people. It is for just the regular, everyday life of Christian living. And the context has convinced me of that, and this verse I'm going to look at right now has convinced me of that. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Okay, some translations say, if your brother sins against you. Guess what? It's another one of these. Against you is in the later manuscripts, not the, the uh, earlier ones. So the, the older manuscripts don't have the words against you. Looks like that was added later by a scribe, right? And we, we, all, we all kind of, uh, we've said, well, you know what, the sin has to be directly against you. Well, sometimes people are sinning and it's not really directly against anyone. What do you do with that? I'm convinced that it's just if your brother sins. That doesn't mean you are the sin police and you go around the church looking for sins. This is somebody you're acquainted with, you've got relationship with, you've got some mileage with, some history with. It'd be very strange for someone brand new to the church to, to come to you that you don't even know and, and confront you. Notice Jesus doesn't use the word confront. There is a word in the Greek for confront. It's not here. Go and show him his fault in private. You're, you're building a narrative. Remember Nathan the prophet and right David when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and David uh, Nathan came and he told this whole story about a guy whose ewe lamb, his only baby lamb, was taken away from him. And David's like, "Well, we got to find that guy and we got to kill him," you know. Hey, that man is you. It's you. I don't know that you always have to come up with some kind of story like that when you go in. But certainly you have to know the person that you're talking to and the best way to approach it. Are they like a blunt, like, just let me have it kind of person? Or do you need to kind of work your way into the conversation? You know, some of the scariest words to me in human language are, you know I love you, right? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> or around here when I first came to the church, Craig or Pastor Doug or Pastor Andy would say, hey, can you come to my office? We need to talk. Like, Uh-oh. <laughs> so I have this deal with Craig where, you know, if it's bad, that's what he says. But if it's, you know, just good, he'll say, hey, come to my office. We're just talking, though. Nothing, you know, he's got to tell me, you know, nothing... Not, nothing bad, nothing heavy. Okay. Isn't that funny that it, uh, for some people your conscience is like, what did I do? And other people don't, don't suspect anything. Yeah. What could it be? You know? Um, so... In the Greek here, and we rarely do this from the pulpit, but where it's appropriate, we'll tell you what's going on in the Greek here. In the Greek, they had a way of doing their if-then 
statements. You know, if this, then this. We do this in English all the time. But in the Greek, they had a special way of doing this based on the tenses of the verbs and the if statement and the then statement to let you know if the person who said the if-then statement actually expected it to happen or if they thought, eh, it might happen, might not, or if they were just being sarcastic and being like, that's never going to happen. You know? Right? So a girl says to a guy, will you go out with... Or a guy says to a girl, will you go out with me? And she says, hey, you know what? If pigs fly then I will go out with you, right? And you're, you're like, oh, okay. That's a no. And so the way, you know, the sarcasm and the tone of voice lets you know, but in the, in the Greek, you can do this with the verb tenses. So, if your brother sins, the verb sins is in a past tense. It's a past tense verb. It looks like something that's going to happen in the future, but Jesus uses a past tense verb, and then he uses a certain mood called the subjunctive mood. If you're English teachers, you're excited right now. You know, oh, subjunctive mood, yeah. Um, All that to say is that this is a third-class statement, which means Jesus, when he spoke these words, expected with certainty this is going to happen. This is going to happen. If your brother sins, we could almost say, when your brother sins. In fact, we're so certain it's going to happen, we're going to talk about a future event with a past tense verb. Isn't that cool? Like it's already happened. This is God, the perfect Holy One, telling the rest of His church, oh, you will sin. No doubt about it. And when it happens, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and show him his fault in private. In, in the Greek, it's literally uh, one-on-one. One-on-one. So go go to him. Have a conversation. Have a cup of coffee. This isn't bringing your briefcase with your, your case. You know, you've got it, an airtight case. That is so intimidating. Hey, let's talk. You can do this with your kids. You can do this with your spouse. You can do this with coworkers, especially with your kids, you know. Hey, we need to talk. Let's talk. Come over here. Sit on Dad's knee. Got to have a talk. That goes over so much better than towering over people and using your authority and, You've sinned. How dare you? And it says, If he listens... I love that word, listens. If he listens, not if he repents, not if he falls down to the ground in tears, groveling at your feet. If he listens, so he listens. And the listening might be, huh, I'm not so sure that what you're saying is true about me, but I know you love me. I know you wouldn't lie to me or try to manipulate me. Could we ask some more people, maybe? You know, get, get a second opinion? Hey, they're listening. The process is working. Don't go to the next step. Dialogue's going on. That's what Jesus wants. Open dialogue, humble hearts, love, help each other with our sins. 
This is so important because the sin may not be a sin at all. It may be a misunderstanding. I gave you that example last week. If you weren't here, it was the night before the installation service. And my family was visiting out of town. And they're huge Giants fans. They're on cloud nine right now, right? You know? They have like a shrine to Madison Bumgarner in their home. They're just like... So they're coming for me, for my installation. They're taking time out. They're driving all the way from the Bay Area to celebrate this special day in my life. And they're like, Saturday night, hey, let's watch the game. I don't have TV. I don't have cable or direct TV. You know why? Because I'd watch sports all day. And I'm an ugly person when I watch sports. If my team's losing, you don't even want to be around me for days. And if a referee blows a call, I go ballistic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all understandable, right? You give me a pass on it. <laughs> this is important stuff, right? Life or death stuff, man. So I don't have a TV, but I'm like, well, we could go to the country club. They got TVs there. We live out in Bear Valley. And now I'm sitting there thinking, should have pastor be sitting in a bar the night before he gets installed. <laughs> it's not a seedy bar, you know. It's, it's like where people have a drink before they go eat their dinner. And I'm like, well, I don't want to offend my brother here in the church. What if somebody sees me and, and that's offensive to him? But I don't want to offend my own flesh and blood family who are Christians we want to go see the Giants game. So I said, I'm going to be a good host. I'll go take them to the Giants game. And I was just kind of sitting there in a corner. <laughs> like, I don't fear of man, right? Okay, so let's say somebody, we're going to use this as a hypothetical in a teaching moment. Let's say somebody walks by from the church, sees me in there. And they're all like, oh no. Pastor's in the bar getting drunk. You know? <laughs> or... Maybe your strong conviction is a pastor should never be in a bar just because of that very reason that you wouldn't want to cause a brother to stumble. And I, I might agree with you there. But what if you came to me and you said, Pastor, we need to talk. I saw you drinking in the bar. It was horrible. I mean, the night before you're installed. Really? <laughs> and they don't even bother to ask. And, you know, well, is it like him to, to hang out at bars? Well, no. It's not like him. You know. Well, who were those people he was with? You know, hey, that was my family, and here was the situation, and here was kind of what I what I was thinking, and I thought it'd be better. I mean, how hard is that for for your own family and for other Christians if you go, oh no, I can't go to a bar because people in my church might think I'm a you know a, a sinner, and they'd be like, well, what kind of church are you going to? They don't trust you. You know, and now I've got to explain to my, my, my own family. Well, if that's what being a Christian is in Tehachapi, no thanks. You know, they live in the Bay Area. They're a little more relaxed on the rules, right? So we had a nice time. The Giants won three to nothing, and we came home, and it was all, everything was good. So if somebody comes to me and they go, hey, Pastor, you know, we love you, right? just had a question. I thought maybe, just maybe, I saw you in the, the Bear Valley Country Club bar. Like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I was there. 
Oh, well, here was the whole deal. Oh, okay. Well, do you think it was still a stumbling block for it? Oh, yeah, I think, I think it is kind of a stumbling block. Okay. Well, please forgive me if it was a stumbling block for you. You know, I had to make a decision whether to be a stumbling block to these people or these people. So I went with loving my direct family and the people I had to live with for the next couple days. So, and would hope that my church family would understand. And then it goes out, it goes well, right? But what if you assumed the worst and your stomach got tied up in knots and you started calling people? I don't know what to do. Pastor was at the bar Saturday night. I'd like to think our church wouldn't gossip, but come on. Some phone calls are being made. I might see it on Facebook. And I don't even Facebook. <laughs> and now you got this huge mess, and, you, and the truth comes out, and now you've got to go back and clean it up. All you had to do was go to, the, go to your pastor, make, make an appointment, and then it would have been cleared up. So be real, real careful. Be real careful. Be humble. Be loving. Now, this is a huge paradigm shift for, for the disciples. This is not the way it happened in their synagogue. If anyone's going to point out anyone's sins, it's going to be the perfect ones, the sinless ones, telling you, you didn't wash your hands enough times. Hey, why do your disciples, uh, why were they eating grain on the Sabbath? That's a no-no. Jesus, you healed a man on the Sabbath? And under no circumstances would someone who's not a church leader confront a church leader. Could you imagine someone going to the chief priest, scribes, or elders? Oh, wait, somebody did, and they killed him. God told them, and they, they killed him. There was no room in their paradigm for anyone coming to me. You talking to me? I'm the, I'm the, I'm the chief priest. I don't sin. Oy vey, right? <laughs> I don't even know if the religious leaders confronted one another. Probably had to go in the pecking order, you know. So the guy at the top never got confronted. So this isn't the way it's going to be in Jesus' church, he's saying. My church, my ecclesia, my gathering is going to be different. We're going to be people who can talk to one another because Jesus is the perfect one. The rest of us... We're sinners saved by grace. We can have these conversations. Okay, so what if you go to your brother, he doesn't take it so well, your sister. She digs in her heels. Maybe it's a, yes, I did, and so what? Just blatant, presumptuous sin. Maybe it's a, I don't think so. I don't think that's a sin. I think you're wrong there. You know, I think I have liberty to do that. Okay, well, what do you do next? You you come back with one or two more. Jesus said, but if he does not listen to you, this isn't, he doesn't repent. It's, he doesn't listen to you. He's not hearing you. He's not agreeing with you. But you still have strong convictions about this. So take one or two more with you. Now, don't take one or two more who agree with everything you say. That's not right. That's ambush. Don't do that. Again, humble heart, loving. The whole point is to honor God, honor Christ. Grab an elder, maybe. Elders are good people to take with you when you get to, to the next step. 
One's, one's better than two. The more people you bring in, the more chance there is that what? It's going to spread past one or two. I, you know, take someone who's known for... Yeah. That's not saying everyone's gossips. It's just saying that some people, when they get this kind of information, they get so, I don't know what to do with it. And they have to, like, tell their husband, or you know. Now, to, now somebody else knows who didn't need to know. And then that makes it awkward because you're not part of the, the, the one or two. And now you got to go to church and see that person. You don't know how it turned out. And you're like, hey, that's... <laughs> So take one or two, and what are the one or two supposed to do? Okay, the one or two might be witnesses to the sin. So you, you saw somebody's sin, it was definitely a sin, and you go to talk to them in private, and they don't, they say, nope, that wasn't me. And you're like, oh my goodness, there's no way I could be mistaken about this, this was you. Well, if you've got one or two others who, who saw it, you could take them. So I hate, I hate to have to do this, Brother, but I love you. And these people were there too. They saw it. Or maybe the one or two are there because you're confronting, not confronting, you're having a conversation about a pattern of sin. Maybe it's somebody who's rude a lot. They're rude. You can't pinpoint one particular thing, but they're just rude all the time. And, and they're like a train wreck, you know. They walk into the room and they just ruin it. Are you going to love this guy or this gal and tell her, tell him? And so you go and you say, you know, you do this thing. And they're like, well, tell me a time I did it. And you're like, well, there's too many. You know, there's a bunch. It's just, you're just rude. You're kind of mean. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Tell me an individual actual sin. If you don't got one, get out of here. Yeah. Thank you. Beat me to the punchline. Like, how about right now? You know? So you might need to take one or two just to say, yeah, you know what? We see it too. We've all been a victim of, of the rudeness. And hopefully they would go, oh, wow. Sometimes they go, why is everyone ganging up against me? And you, what you've got to do is help them see, hey, look, we love you, right? We love you. We have no agenda. You know, snap out of it. We take no pleasure from this. I'd rather not have to talk to you about this. These are the three people who love you. Listen to us. We're all sinners here. We all have our blind spot. Someday I would expect that you might be part of coming to me and pointing something out in love. Now, what if that doesn't go well? Oh, wait a minute. There's, there's one more reason you might have to take one or two. If you go in private and it doesn't go well, you know what tends to happen then? When you, when you take it to the next level, they say, that's not what he said. That's not how he said it. That's, so you might need one or two there to just kind of be the witnesses who go, no, you know, no, this is what he said, this is what she said, this is the ground we covered, this is what we agreed to. And it's good to have someone there who's neutral who can like keep it courteous and tone it down and say, whoa, time out. You guys, you're both sinners saved by grace. You love each other. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's, let's not get angry at each other. 
Maybe we need to take a break today. Maybe we just need a cup of water, some prayer, deep breath. Whatever it is, you need those people there sometimes to just help it not get ugly. All right, now what if this person really digs in their heels? At this point, you've, you've really gone out of your way. You've really worked hard. You've met a lot. You've prayed. You've waited patiently. You've given time for it to marinate, for the Holy Spirit to work. But this person is just dug in, and you're like, this is no good. We can't allow this to go on. You know, sometimes if you let somebody in habitual sin hang around, you know, it's like, the sin is horrible, it's terrible. It's separating you from God. This willful disobedience should give you pause and make you wonder if you even know the Lord. You know, if it's that kind of sin, this is what we're talking about here. And it would be totally incongruous to... to, Take someone like that after step two has been going on for a long time and then go, yeah, well, you're in danger of, of, of hell, but I'll see you at the church picnic next week and we'll play some volleyball. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't work. If you're that concerned about this person's soul, you can't just go on like nothing ever happened. It's, it's like the kids who are sinning at home and their parents have done everything, every loving thing possible. And then like the dad and the prodigal son finally said, all right, you need to go do this somewhere else then. But look at the dad. As soon as the kid repented, he ran to meet him. But sometimes you have to say, well, this, this can't go on in here anymore. It can't go on. We love you too much and we care about the purity of the church and for your sin not to be a stumbling block to others. Rarely have I seen church discipline get to this point. And the only two times I saw it was for adultery. Somebody was in adultery, they were married, they were with somebody else, and they would not repent of it. You can't just let somebody stay in the church and worship and do ministry. and That's not loving. It's not loving to the Lord. It's not loving to the church. It's not loving to that individual. So by the time we get to step three, it is if he refuses to listen. By now, the elders are already involved. Tell it to the church. Maybe that last step will be something that finally... They're going to tell the whole church this thing. Wake up. See... This step isn't the last step. They still might turn here. Okay, so you do tell it to the church. Now what? Step seven, no longer uh, treat the sinner as if he were part of the flock, the unrepentant sinner. Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's not... This, that's not walk by him with your nose up in the air. I can't believe this guy, filthy, rotten sinner. That's not what Jesus means here. Separation. Separation, the the Jews were to separate from the Gentiles. doesn't mean don't see them in the marketplace, don't associate with them, but there were certain rules, mosaic rules for separating themselves 
from the Gentiles. So what might this look like? You see the person out and about, you still talk to them. You still you say, how's that thing going? Do you want to get a cup of coffee and talk about it? And if they're like, get, get out of my face, then you know. They're not ready yet. But you keep asking, you keep pursuing, you, you cover it in prayer. You're hoping they'll come back because heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Any step in the right direction, you're willing to foster that and encourage it. Even if they don't repent all the way, you're, you're encouraging a little bit of repentance. For some people that are really steeped in pride, just a little bit of maybe I was wrong is huge, sadly. Sadly, but that might be you before you became a Christian. Maybe your first step towards God was, well, maybe I might be a sinner. <laughs> That's not what we want to hear, right? But that is, that is a step in the right direction. I, I always say I have a couple kids in my family that just, if they're in sin, they just can't take it and they've got to tell someone right away. And then I have other kids who, uh, they're pretty sure they're not in sin and it's very hard for them. And when you get a little bit of confession from them. It's like buckets full compared to the kid who's like, yeah, I sinned. Whew, I feel better. Right? So you got to know who you're talking to here. It's not shun them. Don't look at them. It's, no, we can't let that back in the church until you're ready to turn from it. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector, so he understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He understood how he was treated. Except I don't think Jesus is saying here, hate or despise the person. He's certainly not saying that because he said earlier, do not despise your brother. In the little part about going after the lost sheep, he says, do not despise your brother. And then finally he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now I know you've used this verse before to say that two people make a prayer meeting. Right? Let me tell you something. If one person is there who believes in Jesus and he's praying, Jesus is there. That's not what this passage is saying. What it's saying here is, if you've gone through the steps correctly with the right heart motive, and this person is certainly in sin and it's obvious to all, don't hesitate from having to do this. Because God's already determined in heaven this person's in sin. You're only pointing out what God's already has the right to point out. And He's given us the command to do this. The only reason we have the right to do this is because we've been forgiven by God and God's commanded us to do this. Our right is not because we're perfect. And so we have the leverage to go and point people's sins out to them. That's what keeps us humble and loving. God did this for me on the cross. i got to do this for other people. I'm being like Jesus here.
And if the person repents, they're already forgiven in heaven. So you're not doing anything that hasn't already been done in heaven. Here's another one of these things, if you knew the Greek here. The tense here is the future perfect. We could say this, whatever has already been bound in heaven shall be bound on earth. Whatever has already been loosed in heaven shall be loosed on earth. This isn't, I decided you're a sinner, God agrees with me. says right here. I got two or three people who agree with me. It's if you did it right, if you have the right perspective and the right heart, you know what, don't be afraid to go talk to your brother. The judge has already determined this is sin. And if they're repentant, the judge has already forgiven. Jesus knows how difficult this task is, but he says he will be with us wherever two or three have gathered together in my name for this purpose, I am there in their midst. Isn't that great? When you get to step two, really step one, you're having that cup of coffee, Jesus is right there. He's your moderator. He should be. He should be the arbitrator right there. Imagine how well this process would work if, if, if Jesus was physically present. Wouldn't that keep you from saying some things? Wouldn't that keep you from being prideful? Wouldn't that keep you from judging? And, and if you were tempted to, he'd just look at you and go, I saw what you were thinking last night. You know, that's the attitude we need to have when we do this. I'm going to save these last two slides for for next week and just dismiss us now. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, the perfect one, the holy one, the forgiving one, the merciful one. Lord, you are perfect. You love perfectly. You judge perfectly. We do not. Keep us humble, Lord. Show us where we need to humble ourselves, where we need to root out pride, where we need to let others take the the spotlight, where we need to receive correction, where we need to change our expectations and not think we deserve the best of the best. Jesus, in you, we have the best of the best. Lord, help us not to be afraid to do this process that you've ordained it for your glory and our good. And when we're concerned with your glory, our good always follows. What a beautiful church it would be if we could lovingly, humbly help one another in our sanctification. May we receive correction and may we give correction the way you do, Jesus Like you said to the woman, caught in adultery, is there anyone left to condemn you? And then, now go and sin no more. Lord, we just pray this church will be just that kind of place. What a light, what a difference that would be to the community. That kind of love is not seen anywhere except where the people of God gather. 
the humble people of God, the loving people of God. Make us into that kind of body, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.